Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series today, I will tell, and we're going to be continuing with a number of passages, so grab your Bibles as we join Dr. Newfeld as he brings us a message entitled, I Will Tell of the Necessity of Christ. My wife and I have friends who work for Wycliffe Bible Translators. While we were visiting the JAR Center in North Carolina, where many Wycliffe translators are sent out, we had the time to visit with a man who plans for the safety of many missionaries. Because all the major languages of the world now have a Bible in their own native language, Wycliffe missionaries are translating Bibles into many tribal languages, meaning they go to remote areas in the world. Keeping missionaries safe is a real issue. You know, this man told me that many boats and ferries used to take people to remote islands were innately unsafe. Many times these boats are going to sink, drowning many on board. And so they provided the missionaries with flotation devices, but many of the missionaries were complaining. They couldn't imagine saving their own lives and simply watching the rest on board drown. And so this man was charged with finding affordable flotation devices that would not only save the missionaries, but that could be used by the missionaries to save countless lives of men and women whom they sailed with. So here's my question. Is the gospel of Jesus really that? It is quite one thing to say that we're saved by Jesus, but what are we saying of those not saved by Jesus? Are their sins unforgiven while ours are forgiven? Are they damned while we're saved? Are we afforded heaven while they're afforded hell? Are the majority of people we bump into every day headed for the great white throne of God to be eternally condemned while we through faith are given to rewards? Now put it another way, are the vast majority of people really on the broad road that leads to destruction? And if that's so, are the rest of us who are saved quite unlike those Wycliffe missionaries? content to have our own life-saving device while being wholly unprepared to share them with anyone else? You know, to this question comes a series of five questions. One, what happens to those who've never heard? Two, what happened to people in the Old Testament who lived before Jesus died on the cross? Three, what about people with severe mental handicaps who have no capacity to understand and believe? Four, what happens to infants who pass away before they can come to terms with a Christian message? Five, Is there really no advantage to a non-Christian who acts virtuously in some cases with even greater virtue than some Christians? And what fascinates me about these five questions is that for many, simply asking them is enough to overthrow the notion that one needs explicit faith in Jesus in order to be saved. So from their perspective, they've heard enough. God would not condemn the vast majority of the human race. I'm always amazed at how easily we ask questions in our culture without ever listening carefully how someone might answer those questions. Instead, we jump to the conclusions that these questions must be unanswerable, and in the process, we lose the urgency of presenting the gospel. And so, three possible answers have been given to these five questions that I've just asked. The first is that of universalism. Universalists say God saves anyone who does the best they can. And when it comes to doing the best we can, who are we to judge? Of course, that would mean that Christ died for nothing, for it is not in the end his blood that saves, rather doing our best saves. Well, the second possible answer is that people only get saved by Christ, but that Christ saves a whole host of people who never explicitly trusted him for salvation. 
They're going to get to the other side and simply find out that it was Christ's death on the cross that saved them. Of course, if that were true, then why are we even preaching the gospel at all? And if that's true, there's no need to call people to believe. You see, with that point of view, faith is not necessary to be saved. Yeah, these people are going to say, you know, faith in Christ gets you saved, but it's not the only way you get to be saved. And if that's true, we can all rest a little easier, can't we? Uh, We don't have to share our faith as urgently as before. We might not have to sacrifice our lives for the sake of the lost after all. You see, the nerve of urgency has been cut. The third possible answer to the five questions is the agnostic answer. None of us can say for sure, and since we don't know for sure, we shouldn't be so quick to make judgmental statements. Now imagine Peter preaching that way on the day of Pentecost. You know, he's just given an amazing message that have ended with these words. This Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Christ. And in response, says Luke, who records the incident, people were cut to the heart. They said, what then must we do to be saved? Now, if Peter had our problems, he would have answered, well, I can't be dogmatic about this because none of us can say with certainty, but I've repented and be baptized, and I guess I believed in Jesus, and it's certainly one of the ways you can be saved, so I would commend that to you, but I don't want to offend anyone here, and, and you might find your own way. See, the problem with the current fog is twofold. One, we're lacking the confidence of a previous generation in declaring what we know to be true. And two, we've lost the motivation that once inspired evangelists and missionaries and preachers and countless faithful believers who shared their faith tirelessly and gave to the point of poverty, believing that if this was not done, countless millions of people would enter into eternity facing the bar of God's judgment without a ransom for their sins. We used to say, love constrains us, for if we do not tell, they will not hear, and if they do not hear, they cannot be saved. See, I want to confront all these with three important questions when we consider these matters. Number one, will anyone experience an eternity in hell? See, that's a fair question. Will anyone enter through into eternal fire that demands they abandon all hope for endless ages? That's the first question. And here's the second. Is the work of Christ, which includes his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, was that necessary in order for anyone to escape the eternal damnation that's described in the Bible? And three, is it necessary for people to hear and believe in order to be saved? Let's see if we can answer those three questions. So one, Is hell real and are people going there? And of course, you and I have never walked through the gates of eternity and seen what confronts us on the other side. But at the very least, let's consider the evidence of the Bible. You know, first from the Old Testament. I know that many of us have been taught that the Old Testament makes no statements about the afterlife. But consider the well-known Psalm 23. David says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was David's expectation. But was there also an expectation of hell in the Old Testament? Indeed, there is. Daniel 12, verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Please notice that if the life is everlasting, then the contempt is everlasting as well. Both are described as having an endless duration. Now, what the Old Testament states in vague terms, the New Testament presents in blazing clarity. 
Many people are surprised to find that no one in the Bible spoke of hell more frequently than did Jesus. So, for example, Mark 9, 43 to 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So from this text, notice two things. First, Jesus claimed that people go to hell because of their sins. See, that should banish the idea that people go to hell because they're not Christian. The Bible never says that. People go to hell because they have sinned and are judged on the basis of their crimes against God's rule. See, that's the point. Since we have all fallen short of the glory of God, since we've all sinned, hell awaits the entire human race. Second, notice also that the hell spoken of here is unending. And that's clearly what Christ had in mind, as he calls hell the place of unquenchable fire. That is, it cannot be put out. And the mention of where their worm does not die, in other words, their life, just like the fire, is never quenched. It goes on for eternity. And those are the plain words of Jesus. Jesus spoke of this more than anyone else. Now then, Is this the only time that Jesus spoke this way? Well, you can find very similar sayings in Matthew 10, 28. You can find it again in Matthew 12, 32. Then again in Matthew 18, verse 8. Then in Matthew 25, verse 41 and 46. Then in Matthew 26, verse 24. You see, in all these passages, Jesus uses words like eternal punishment. He says it would be better if that person had never been born He says, guilty of an eternal sin. He says, never forgiven in the age to come. It's horrifying. We need to consider it. We need to take it to heart. We need to take action. I Will Tell. This is a series where Dr. Neufeld focuses on the theme verse and a command found in Psalm 78 verse 4. In it were compelled by these words, I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, which he has done in the past from the next generation. This popular series provides you the tools and incentive to share the gospel. It will help inspire you rather than guilt you into action. It reminds us that we each bear responsibility to intentionally share the truths of the gospel, the God of the Bible, his deeds, and his provision for all those that believe. This month, We're excited to offer this entire series on CD for anyone who would ask. Our gift to encourage and inspire. Ask for a copy of I Will Tell for yourself or even pass it on to a friend. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. The rest of the New Testament also talks about heaven and hell. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of eternal destruction. Hebrews 6, 1-2 speaks of eternal judgment. Jude 13 speaks of the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever. Revelation 14, verse 11 speaks of the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever, in which they have no rest day or night. 
See, whatever you think on the subject of hell, all of us need the honesty to admit that the Bible speaks of this subject often, and a plain reading of the Bible denies the idea of annihilation and the idea that hell only has a limited duration. I find it emotionally difficult to talk about hell. I can't imagine anyone with even the slightest modicum of decency speaking about hell with anything but a heavy heart and reddened eyes. And to those who wonder how sin could deserve such a punishment, you know, we would be well served to read Jonathan Edwards' work entitled The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. There Edwards said, so sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. To those who say, surely God would not condemn the greater part of the human race, we do well to remember first the words of Jesus, who in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 said, the gate is wide that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many, and the gate is narrow that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And furthermore, 2 Peter 2, 4-10 reminds us that at the time of Noah, God did not spare the ancient world, but only one family. Neither did he spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but spared only one family. Then, says Peter, then God knows how to keep the unrighteous under the judgment of punishment reserved for the final day. Again, to make this matter plain, the numbers of unrighteous people do not cancel out the judgment of God. If it means all would be condemned, God will not stay his hand. So the Bible tells us that hell is real and people are indeed going there. And that brings us to our next question. Number two is the cross of Christ, the only solution to the hell problem. And we would take a great deal of time answering that question, but let me simply quote one passage, 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I hope you see the parallelism in that passage. If there is only one God and no others, then so the passage says it. In the same way, there is only one mediator between God and men, no more than one. And so the only solution to the sin problem is found in Jesus. I know, I know. You know, someone is bound to ask, well, are you saying that all those other religions are wrong? So let's be clear. Many religions don't even have a personal God in them. Buddhism believes there is no God. Hinduism believes that everything is God and so that God is not personal and has no personality. So what I'm trying to say is that the idea of sins presenting a barrier between ourselves and God, that idea is not even present in those religions at all. They don't even speak to the question. So to ask if they're wrong, well, it's simply to ask the wrong question. I'm about to make a statement that may be surprising to some. Not only are not all religions essentially the same, the religions of the world are not even asking the same questions, never mind giving the same answers. Only the Christian faith presents the sin question as the fundamental problem of the human race. And since no other religion in the world even presents sin as a problem to begin with, no other religion in the world has even suggested what must be done about the sin problem. 
So when the Bible says there is but one mediator between God and man, please understand, no one else is even suggesting the need for a mediator between God and man. Jesus is the only one. And that brings us to the third question. Does a person need to believe in Jesus to be saved? See, that's a key question. Can a person be saved in another way? You know, Acts chapter 4 says that Peter and John were arrested for preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the same group that only a short time earlier had ruled that Jesus should be condemned to death. Now, there they are told to give an account of themselves and the seditious message they've been preaching. So let me read a part of their response in Acts 4 verse 12. They say, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, it is clear that they believe that it was impossible to be saved from the judgment to come without Jesus. But here now is the question. Did they keep teaching that? Well, several chapters later, not much time has elapsed, a Roman centurion named Cornelius is described as a man who fears God of Israel. And says the Bible, a man who makes a practice of doing what is right. And he has a visit in his home from the apostle Peter, who preaches the gospel of Jesus to him in his household. And he and all his household believe. Later in Acts 11 verse 14, Peter is telling the church in Jerusalem about his encounter with Cornelius. And in telling the story, says that Cornelius had received a vision given by an angel before he got there. And the angel told the Roman centurion Cornelius of Peter's coming, and here I quote, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. In other words, even though Cornelius feared God and did what's right, the clear wording of scripture is he wasn't saved. No one had atoned for his sins. He needed the message of Jesus. Boy, I wish I had the time to thoroughly examine everything the Bible tells us about the need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. But let me quote to you one very simple verse, 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I think we need to settle this matter. It is necessary for people who are lost, which, by the way, is everybody. It is necessary for lost people to hear the saving message of Jesus in order to be saved. For if they do not hear and if they do not believe, they cannot be saved. But we might argue you've not answered the questions you began by raising. I mean, what happened to people in the Old Testament who lived before Jesus died on the cross? What about people with severe mental handicaps who have no capacity to understand and believe? What happens to infants who pass away before they come to terms with the message of Jesus? Well, in truth, each one of these questions need to be seriously considered on their own. And we could do an extensive study on each one of those questions and don't have the time to do that, you know, in one simple message. But we would agree that sometimes, you know, we raise a series of questions that only succeed in excusing our lack of urgency for the task that Christ has given us. He wanted us to go into the world and preach the gospel. He wanted us to go with a deep abiding sense of the urgency of the hour. He wanted us to see a great cataclysm that awaits the entire human race. Imagine hurtling down the roadway in a car doing 100 kilometers an hour 
not knowing that in the crest of the next hill, there's a bridge that's out over an icy river and unknown to us, the bridge is gone. Now imagine no one telling you the bridge is out. The human race for the most part does not understand that the bridge is out, but a savior has been found. Unless we tell, they're lost. So let me get back to my initial example of the Wycliffe Bible translators complaining that it was unethical to get a life vest in a sinking boat and to forget about one's fellow passengers to take care of only oneself and one's family. Apply that to our nation. You know, if you love your country, then you and I must find means of making sure that the gospel is heard in our country. That includes healthy, outreach-minded churches. It includes programs like Back to the Bible and others that get the message of Christ out. But at some level, it must also include believers in Jesus who know how to have a spiritual conversation with work colleagues, neighbors, friends, family members, and the like, and be prepared in a loving and a gentle manner to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not yet believe so that by all means we might save some. Why? Because the love of Christ compels us. Romans 10:15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You know, tomorrow, please come back. I'm gonna do a tutorial on how to share the gospel of Jesus as a way of life. But above all, develop an urgency. We don't know the time of the Lord's return or the time given to any human being before they stand before the bar of God's justice. They need the only mediator the human race has been given. They need to hear the gospel. John, is it possible that the teaching we hear today has so watered down in culturalized scripture that we've lost a sense of urgency? Yeah, I think the need for righteousness the portrayal of a righteous God um, who is both demanding in his righteousness and overwhelming in his love. I mean, we need to put those two together. And I think we live in a particular day uh, when I'm going to say that, you know, that whole talk about the love of God is now held in isolation from his righteousness. There have been other times in history we've done the other side. So the important thing for us is to get a biblical view of how God communicates himself to us, and we need to understand God in concert with both of those, a loving God who's seeking to save the lost, but also the fact that we're genuinely lost and under wrath, both. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, I Will Tell, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hey, we wanted you to know that there's still time to order our beautiful limited edition Back to the Bible Canada 2021 Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar. It provides you with words of encouragement, beautiful pictures of creation, and a uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Newfeld, encouraging all of us to open up our Bibles. Use your calendar as a daily reminder to practice the discipline of reading God's Word. This resource is filled with encouragement and it's yours for free. There are limited quantities of this free calendar, so reach out today to ensure you get your copy of our 2021 Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar. 
to request your copy today and perhaps give a financial gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.